Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. Our scripture reading today is from Hebrews uh, chapter 6, verses 4 through 12. Hebrews 6, 4 through 12. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For the land that had drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in our case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Good morning. <clears throat> that is our passage this morning. It's a very important one. <laughs> What's that? It was a run-on sentence. You're right, among other things. <laughs> Before we get into that text, so turn in your Bibles, if you didn't already, to Matthew 6, and uh, we are, excuse me, Hebrews, Hebrews 6. We'll be looking at verses 4 through 12. I wanted to say a couple of thank yous. Uh, the first to everyone who was involved with those Wednesday night ministries. Um, we kind of did an Awana wrap-up a few minutes ago, and um, just a lot goes on here at our church on Wednesday nights during the, the busy season from, from that September through... Uh, through April and with the family meals and then the Awana and we have youth groups going and so so many of you are involved in that. Just thank you for, for making that all happen and it's just really exciting time of the year. We kind of shift down a gear. Youth groups keep meeting. Youth groups are still happening on Wednesday nights but some of those other ministries take a break now but thank you so much for being involved in those. And I also did want to say thanks to everyone who helped out with the Don Gibson Memorial. Don went home to be with the Lord. I'm going to miss him. He usually sits back there and uh, uh, he uh, went home to be with the Lord last year, uh, last week, and um, many of you chipped into that service on Friday. Thanks for doing that. I also, before I pray and jump into the Word here, I wanted to um, publicly welcome our newest staff member, Cindy, uh, Cindy Nichols. Cindy, could you please stand? I won't make you come up here because you're already up here so much. But <laughs> um, this is Cindy. Cindy is our. Uh, you can go ahead and sit down. Cindy is our new worship uh, ministries director, part-time position, 
And I'm just really grateful for her uh, desire and just sense of call to, to take that up. Um, we said goodbye last week to Pastor Andrew, and he took his music gifts with him. And um, as the board and I looked at kind of what we'd like to do with the associate position going forward, uh, we, we wanted to separate the, the worship piece from the discipleship piece and have an associate pastor who's dedicating full-time ministry to student ministries and then other disciple-making ministries. And so that left the worship piece. What are we going to, you know, because we do have, I think we, we, we do enough things on Sunday morning that it does need some staff support. And um, the Lord has provided Cindy. So we're just so grateful for her. So if you want to be involved in worship ministries or just want to thank someone for what's going on in worship ministries and you're not, who to t- not sure who to talk to, you can start with Cindy and, uh, or me or uh, Chad Williams, who's the elder of worship as well. So thank you, Cindy, for uh, your heart for serving. Would you pray with me, please? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for bringing us here today. Thank you for giving us the, the, the longing, the, uh, the desire to, to be in the house of the Lord, to be with your people, to hear you uh, in your word and in worship and prayer and in celebration and fellowship. We thank you for that. Uh, I want to ask you now, Lord, to give, uh, give me strength and give all of us uh, attentive hearts and um, just a real openness to your spirit to be able to understand this passage, to see where it fits in the sweep of scripture and in, uh, and in the, the doctrine of salvation. Help us understand this today. Uh, help me to get out of the way and help us to see and hear what you have for us. It's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. How do I know if I am still saved? How do I know if I'm saved? People have asked me that question numerous times over the years. That question or something like it. Uh, sometimes it does come in other forms. Uh, a lot of times it'll come, with, it'll come this way. Is it possible to lose my salvation? I've, I've been asked that question. Uh, or sometimes it'll be, it'll be connected to something. Does the fact that I still struggle with X, with whatever X is, does that mean I'm not really a believer? Uh, sometimes people ask this question because of something circumstantial, right? Something that's going on in their lives. Maybe they're going through a time of doubt. Uh, maybe they've fallen into a particularly troubling sin, and they're just kind of horrified at what they themselves have done. And, and, and so it's something circumstantial, and they're wondering, if, have I lost my salvation? Other times, though, people ask this question because they've been reading their Bible, Sometimes that's the issue, Uh, especially the book of Hebrews. I can't tell you how many times someone has been reading the book of Hebrews. They've come to chapter 6, and they find themselves asking this question. Can a Christian lose his or her salvation? We're working through the first six chapters of Hebrews this spring, and we have one more sermon in this first half of the book, and then we're going to take a break and do something else for the summer. Uh, and, and we're in the part of the book, I've told you probably more times than you want to hear, that, there, that one way to organize Hebrews is to organize, organize it around the five major warnings. There are five major warnings in the book, and uh, we've covered two of them so far. We covered the warning in chapter 2, which is a warning about spiritual drift, and then we had the warning in chapter 3, close to the end of chapter 3, about the danger of a hard heart or spiritual heart disease. Uh, We are now in the middle of the third warning. The third warning is a warning against, really, uh, spiritual immaturity, or I I called it stunted spiritual development. And this warning, this third one, is actually longer than the two that have come before. It actually stretches from the middle of chapter 5 into either to the middle of chapter 6, or you could make the case it stretches all the way to the end of chapter 6. But either way, it's a longer section with this third warning. 
And so uh, last week we took a break from Hebrews, but the, two weeks ago we, we, we introduced this warning against stunted spiritual development. And we said that we need to guard ourselves against that. We need to combat that by going after spiritual maturity. We need to do those things in our own lives, and we need to do them together as a church, those things that help us grow, help us grow in our faith in Jesus. Well, today's passage, as I say, is, is actually connected to that warning. It's still part of the warning. And the connection is that stunted spiritual development is actually kind of a two-pronged problem here. It, 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 when you see that, when you see that someone isn't growing spiritually, it, it's a sign of one of two things, one of two things that's going on. Uh, the first one is the one we talked about two weeks ago. It's, it's the, the possibility that you have a believer, someone who's truly born again, but who, for whatever reason, stalls out. And maybe it's poor discipleship, or the, you know, they're not involved in a kind of a healthy church, or maybe they're not involved in any kind of church. Or There's all kinds of things. Sometimes things happen in our lives, and where there's a deep pain, and they get hurt in the church, and, and so that causes it. There's all kinds of things that can cause it. But you have a, a person who's saved, but who's not growing anymore. That's, that's one uh, cause of stunted spiritual development, right? And so we talked about, you know, a baby who doesn't grow up or an athlete who never trains. That athlete's really an athlete. He's got the gifts and the talents, but he hasn't been training. That's the, that's, that's the first uh, thing that stunted spiritual development can indicate. Uh, the other one, though, the second thing it, it can indicate is someone who's not a believer at all. And so when you see someone, or when, you see in our, when we see in ourselves that there's not any spiritual growth happening, one possibility is we're just stalled out and we need to start growing again. The other possibility is that there's nothing there to grow, that we're not saved at all. And that's what this passage gets us into, because this passage, the one in front of us today, makes us ask this question, is it possible, right? You, if you read this passage, you can't help but ask the question, is it possible for a believer to lose his or her salvation? Can that happen? The answer is no. No, it cannot happen. And I, I am aware that some other Christian traditions answer this question differently. I'm not going to debate with them this morning, but if you ask, what do we teach here at Grace Point? What do I believe the scriptures teach? Uh, we teach that the answer is no. A believer cannot lose uh, his or her salvation. That's not possible. However, there's a however. However, it is possible to look like a believer and never be saved at all. And that's what this passage is cluing us into. It's, it's warning us. This is the other half of stunted spiritual development. It's a warning against the danger of putting on a mighty good show, looking like a believer, but never actually getting saved. That's what this passage is about, verses 4 through 12. Uh, we're going to approach it in three sections, not a particularly fancy outline this morning. I just want to take each of these sections one at a time. If you like to use the outline in the bulletin, it's kind of printed out there for you. I'm going to take it in three sections, and I want to show how each one is connected to the one before. And then when we get to the end, I'll do some application to wrap it all up just so we leave with some things to actually uh, put into practice. So, uh, so let's start. We'll dive in on the hard part. We'll jump right in with the, uh, the what's probably the hardest part of this passage, uh, understanding correctly verses 4 through 6. So let me, let me read them again, just so they're real, real fresh right here. Uh, the author writes, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. 
All right, the best way to tackle this is to break it down into its pieces. So let's look at the pieces here. Verse 4 starts with a group of people, right? It introduces us to a group of people called those. Uh, it would be convenient if he'd given it a more, a more descriptive name, but he just calls them those. Uh, it is impossible in the case of those, all right? So we're going to focus on this subset of people called those. And this is important, actually, because it tells us we're not talking about all Christians. I think from the beginning, he tells us we're not talking about all Christians. We're not talking about the whole church. This is a specific subset who meets the criteria he's going to describe here. That's who he's talking about. All right, so we're going to focus in on this those group and try to understand who they are. Uh, by the way, this also connects back to verse 3. Uh, verse 3 uh, says that uh, we're going to press on. If you remember that verse, I didn't spend much time with it two weeks ago, but that verse 3 says uh, we will press on into the deeper things uh, if God permits, which kind of leaves a question hanging in our brains. We kind of sit there wondering, why wouldn't God permit I mean, that sure sounds like his kind of thing, right? You know, we want to press on into the deeper things of God. Why wouldn't God permit that? Well, he's going to answer that question now. That's actually what he's doing here, is he's answering the question of what sort of people would God not permit to dig on, to, to go on into the deeper things of God? Well, it's, it's this group. It's the those that we're going to read about in verses 4 through 6. So we have this group of people we're trying to understand, and he actually tells us what they've experienced and that's what you get in verses 4 and 5. He actually gives us a list. He gives us a list of the things these people have experienced. And it's a pretty uh, amazing list. He says they've been enlightened. Right? This is the part where we start thinking about, are we talking about a Christian here? They've been enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. And they've tasted, he uses the same word again. It's the same verb as the first one, uh, the second one, I mean. They've tasted uh, the goodness of God's word, and they've tasted the powers of the age to come. All right, so that's what these people have had. I'm going to come back to this list in a few minutes and show you how I think it should be understood, but for now, let's just put it on the table. That sure does sound like a believer. Right, don't those sound like very Christian things as you read them there? It sure does. Uh, and that's why this, is, that's th this right here, understanding verses 4 and 5, is, uh, is probably the most confusing part of this passage. So just to understand those verses, so the author describes this, these people, it's those, uh, they've experienced what appears to be a vibrant Christian life, that's verses 4 and 5, but then they fell away, right? So now we, we get to that in verse 6, so they fall away, so they've experienced all these things described in verses 4 and 5, they fall away, and then verse 6 tells us the consequence of this falling away, the consequence is they cannot be restored again. They can't be brought back to what they had before. They can't be brought back to repentance, he says. That's the connection with the impossible. Uh, when it says it is impossible, that's actually the main idea of the whole sentence, but it doesn't close it with a verb until verse 6. So it is impossible to restore, verse 6, the people he's describing in verses 4 and 5. That's how the logic works there in that sentence. And then you get the second half of verse 6. Uh, we're given what looks like a reason. Why can't they be restored? They can't be restored because they are doing two terrible things. They're crucifying Jesus all over again, and they're holding him up to contempt, it says. And so what they're doing is really bad. Right? They're crossing a line. The idea here is they're crossing a line that no one should be crossing. Right? They're crucifying again. It's like they've, they've taken up a hammer, and they're in there driving in the nails. They're crucifying again uh, Jesus. Right? And so that's, this is why it seems to say they cannot be restored. So you can see why you read all that and you say, okay, this is talking about Christians losing their salvation. This is a real danger here. 
And I have to tell you at this point that if all I had was those three verses, I would agree. If the author of Hebrews stopped in verse 6 and then he moved on to the next thing he wants to talk about, I would, I would actually feel the same way. I would read those verses and I'd say, okay, that sounds like a believer can lose his salvation. Although I got lots of other passages that tell me that we can't, so I'd be confused. But that's what I would think this passage says. However, uh, the author does keep going. He, he, he has more to say on this, and that's where verses 7 and 8 come in. Uh, the author gives us a metaphor in verses 7 and 8 uh, to, to explain. Verses 7 and 8 explain verses 4, 5, and 6. In fact, I'm going to call this a parable this morning. I'm going to uh, refer to this as a parable. Uh, I'm not sure it technically applies as a parable. If there was a New Testament professor here, he might tell me I was wrong to use the term. But, uh, but it, I, I'm using it intentionally because the, what you read here in verses 7 and 8 reminds us of two parables that Jesus told. And you could read them both. I'm not going to take, it would be too long as it is, but, uh, but if you wanted to, you could go read Matthew chapter 13. And Jesus tells two parables in Matthew chapter 13 that this parable, verses 7 and 8, echo. And one of them is called the parable of the sower, or I like to call it the parable of the soils. And the other one is the parable of the weeds and the wheat. All right, so two parables Jesus tells that this isn't exactly like either one, but it echoes themes from both of them. And so that's why I want to call this a parable this morning. So the author of Hebrews gives us this word picture to explain what he just said in verses 4, 5, and 6. So let me read them. He says, for, and that's a Greek word that means I'm going to explain it to you now. It has, uh, grammarians say it has explanatory force. So, so it's a direct connection. He says, for, land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, that kind of land receives a blessing from God. But if it, the land, bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So verses 7 and 8 are going to explain verses 4, 5, and 6. And that's important to recognize. I don't know about you, but when I'm just doing like a casual read-through of Hebrews, it always, you know, my brain always feels like there's a disconnect when you read that verse 7. You're like, wait a minute. I thought we were talking about people like being judged and losing their salvation. Why are you talking about land all of a sudden? It feels totally disconnected. But it's not totally disconnected. It's actually directly connected. And that's the importance of that word for. Uh, I'm going to explain to you, he says, those, two, the, the, that, those three verses before. So he's going to give this to us. Um, so, so let's look at the parts of the parable let's, and try to understand how this little mini parable, verses 7 and 8, let's understand how it explains verses 4 through 6. First, we have the land. Right? So the land is the star of the story. Every time Jesus tells a parable, there's one detail, uh, or sometimes two, but often it's one detail that is the star of the story. And here it's the land. The land is the star. But here's the thing about the land. There's not just one type of land. There's two types. There's two different types of land in this parable. Uh, that's, that's actually the connection to the parable of the soils. If you remember the parable of the soils, that's the one where Jesus teaches the sower comes through and he scatters the seed and it's the same seed on all the soil, but there's four different kinds of soil. There's the nice soft soil, there's the rocky soil, there's the thorny soil, and, and, and uh, the other one, the shallow soil. Uh, and, and, and so there's four different kinds of soil in that parable. That's what's going on here. There's two different types of soil. The first one's described in verse 7, the second one's described in verse 8. But here's the thing, and this is so important. 
both soils look the same. You can't look and say, oh, that's good soil, that's bad soil. You can't just look and see. They both look the same. How are you going to tell the difference? You got to wait and see what grows. That's how you tell the difference. That's what makes the, the, the difference stand out between the two types of land. It's what grows there. So verse 7 is good land. It's good land because it produces a useful crop. Right? It's the crop that makes it use that makes it good land. That's how it's described or, or reveals. The crop doesn't make it good land. The crop reveals that it's good land, right? Just like in our own agricultural experience. It's what, what will stuff grow there? Okay, it's good land, right? So, so, and that's how it's described in verse seven. Uh, it, the land produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated. So good stuff grows. Good stuff grows there. Corn, soy, wheat, alfalfa, vegetables, whatever you need that field to produce, it produces it and it's wonderful, right? So that's good land. The other type of land in the little parable is verse 8. And all that land can produce is thorns and thistles. That's all that grows there. That makes it, that, that, that reveals that it's bad land. And the word worthless is used. It's worthless. Uh, and so the only thing you can do with it is burn it. Right? It's pretty a stark picture, right? It's, 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 all, it's, it's cursed. It's under a curse. And all you're going to do is burn it. Its end is to be burned uh, which agriculturally is how they would do it, right? If, we, if you had a field filled with weeds, uh, thorns and thistles, I suppose we have, maybe we have herbicides and, and ways to treat it now, but with ancient agricultural practices, the best thing to do is just do a burn, burn it out, kill all the bad stuff and start over again. That, that would be, so it's a very familiar picture. Yeah, that's what I would do with a field that was thorns and thistles. I would, I would burn it and start over again. And so you have these two kinds of land. There in verses uh, in verse seven and eight, you got good land which is good, and you see it in the useful crop, and you got bad land which is bad. You see it in the useless, worthless crop. But here's the part that explains verses four and five, right? So that that description, that that list of five things, because there's one more element in the parable, and it's the rain. The rain is real important here, because the rain falls equally on both types of land. Right? doesn't matter what kind of land you are. Either way, you get the rain. Either way, you get the rain. So you get in verse 7. Uh, first type of land is land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a useful crop. We talked about that. That's the good land. But the rain falls on the bad land, too. If you look at how it's structured, he says, but if it, this is verse 8, but if it, what does it refer to? It refers back up to what we just talked about in verse 7 the land that drinks the rain that often falls upon it, right? They both get the rain. So the, the soils look the same, and they also get the same rain. Oh, the only difference is going to worry. You're not going to see the, you're not gonna, the, the difference won't be visibly apparent. The soils look the same. The difference won't be in what falls on them. They both get the same rain. The difference is going to come in what grows. That's where we'll know which is good soil and which is bad soil. Now let's go back to verses 4 and 5. I want to submit to you this morning, here's the right way to understand this passage, that list of five things in verses 4 and 5, that's the rain. That's the rain in the parable. So, verses 4 and 5, contrary to our first instinct when we just read this casually, verses 4 and 5 are not describing a genuine believer's experience of salvation. They are describing the general experience that anyone who's involved in a Christian community is going to experience. 
It's just kind of general grace, you might call it. And, and to show you what I mean, let me, let, me, let me take them apart and show you one at a time. Uh, first, it says these, these, these people have been enlightened, have once been enlightened. And that term can go either way. That term enlightened, there are absolutely passages where salvation, genuine regenerative salvation, is described in terms of, of enlightenment, right? So the Holy Spirit turns on the lights inside and brings us to life. But you, there are other verses that will use this kind of language of, of, with a, simply a cognitive understanding, right? So when have, that word, that word enlightened is not a word that automatically means salvation. It can also mean to just understand something. And there's lots of people, right? You know them. I know them. We know people like this, people who, who understand the gospel, right? They, they, maybe they're religion professors, or maybe they've, they've just studied this stuff for a long, long time. They, they understand the Christian gospel. They understand the, the Christian message. They could even write a sermon on it and explain it to someone else. But they themselves have never actually surrendered to and embraced that Christian gospel. That would fit this term, have once been enlightened. Uh, it says they've tasted the heavenly gift. They've tasted the heavenly gift. I think the heavenly gift here is a, it's a general term he's using to describe the love of God and grace of fellowship and the promises of, of the gospel, all that kind of stuff. He doesn't really specify it a whole lot. I want to focus on the verb. I think the verb is the key here. Taste it. They've tasted the heavenly gift. Now, sometimes we taste something and we eat it. Right? We take it right in. Right? I think of that psalm that says, taste and see that the Lord is good. That is an invitation to, to enter fully into and enjoy the Lord and, and, and uh, partake of him. And that's one thing we do when we taste something. Sometimes we taste it and we take it in. Other times, though, we taste something and we spit it out again. Or we taste just a little bit of it. Right? Just a little bit of a taste. Have you ever done that? Right? You're, you're, maybe you're at a party and there's a, a, a delicious rich chocolate cake. And it's like the featured dessert for the night. You know, you're having, you go over to somebody's house for a dinner party and there's this, you can tell it's like a thousand calories in a small slice, right? And, and, and meanwhile, you're going on a trip in a couple of weeks. You've been trying to trim down a little bit actually. So when you see that cake there, you're like, I'm not going to have any of that cake. But then dessert time comes and the hostess is like, here, have, a, have some cake. And she cuts you this huge slice. And she's, she's like, here, have some of this cake. And, and you're like, no, I'm good. Thank you. I've had enough. She's like, oh, I worked so hard on this cake. You got to have some of my cake. I'm going I'm to be so offended if you don't eat some of my cake. And so what do you say? Okay, just a taste. Just, just, a, just a taste. Just cut me off a little sliver off the side there, just a little bit, just so I can, I can see what it's like. That way I can, I can taste your cake, but it won't really affect me. It won't really have, have any effect. I'll have just a taste. I think that's how the word taste is being used here in verses 4 and 5. Uh, this is people who have tasted the heavenly gift, but they haven't ingested it, they haven't eaten it. They haven't let it change their lives. And then you get the same thing. That's why the verb is repeated. You get the same thing in verse 5. They've tasted the goodness of God's word. They've heard lots and lots of sermons. Do you know Benjamin Franklin was, uh, was a deist? He was not a believer. But he loved to go listen to George Whitfield, one of the most famous preachers from his day, because Whitfield was such a compelling speaker. And, and Franklin once famously said he could tell that Whitfield actually believed it. So ben, uh, Whitfield actually believed it. So Ben Franklin would stand in the back of Whitfield's sermons and listen to them. But it never, never changed anything, never changed the man's life. 
He tasted the goodness of God's word. Maybe, maybe it's you know, someone who's benefited from living in a world, in a society that has been deeply impacted by Christian morality, Christian ethics, the Judeo-Christian uh, worldview that we talk about. They've tasted it, they've taken in, they've benefited from it, but they've never made it the foundation of their own lives. I think that's that idea there. And then the same thing with the powers of the age to come. I take that as a reference to kind of the promises of heaven. Right? The promises of, 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 of a future that is better when Jesus returns and we live with him forever. They've tasted that, too. They've tasted it. They, they go to the occasional funeral, the pastor gets up, talks about heaven, and they say, yeah, that sounds pretty good. I'll, I'll have a taste of that. I'll, I'll, I'll take that. I'll, I'll t- when the time comes, give me some of that heaven thing. I'll take that. But two days later, that is not where their hope is. <laughs> their hope isn't in Jesus. It isn't in heaven. It's in, to borrow John's phrase, it's in the things that they own and the pleasures of the flesh. I think that's the idea here. And then the fifth one, just to fill them all in, uh, even the one where the the middle of the five, where it says they've shared in the Holy Spirit. That word shared, again, it's like enlightenment. It can mean either way. Uh, This word shared can mean to become a believer, right? So to share in the fellowship of the church, right? There is a sense in which it can mean a, a more intimate sharing, but there are also instances in the New Testament where this word is used, this phrasing is used, to describe a more distanced and formal relationship. For example, there's a, an instance in one of the Gospels that describes uh, a business partnership among some of the disciples before they come to Jesus, the men who were fishermen. This same description is used. They were, they were business partners, but they, hadn't, they weren't living their lives for each other. They were just business partners. And, and so, again, this is, it's, it's this idea of coming up close to uh, the, the Holy Spirit, but not entering into and allowing him to transform their lives. And I, and I think that's how this one should describe. And so how do I look at that? I think that's, that whole description there in verses 4 and 5, that's the rain that often falls, right? And the rain, it's, we're, we're enjoying it right now, right? It's the rain that all we did earlier when the worship team led us. That's the rain that often falls, and it falls on the good land and the bad land alike. That's what's happening there in those verses. But then here's the problem, right? And so it's, it's people who, you know, they go to church. Maybe they even go to Bible college. Maybe they even go to seminary, some of them. Right? They get oh so close to, to Christian things, but they never actually give their life to Jesus Christ. And then when, and, and then when the hard times come, and I want to remind you that that is the background noise, or the background soundtrack is better, of, of the book of Hebrews, which is that we understand that they were under increasing pressure as, as Christians in a culture where the Roman Empire was starting to figure out, wait a minute, we don't like these Christians so much. And so uh, persecution was starting to come, both from within and from without. And and so there, was a, there, were, there was, begins to be these apostasies with people who are going back to Judaism, these Hebrew Christians, uh, Jewish Christians, who are going back to their Judaism because following Jesus was getting too costly. It was getting too hard. And who's going to give into that? It's this category. It's those who were never transformed in the first place. They, 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 that's, that's the fall away that our author is concerned about when he says they fall away. It's this turning away from the, the church, from, and more importantly, frankly, from Christ, turning away from Christ when, when things get hard. And then just to explain that last piece, uh, the, the second half of verse 6, they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. I was, whenever I'm asked this question about this passage, I like to explain, this is not talking about a believer who stumbles into sin. 
Every one of us does that. We've all stumbled into sin. We all sin, right? We, we all sin. Uh, Romans 7, we, we continue to struggle with that. But that's not, that's why this language is so strong here in the second half of verse 6. This, these are people who don't just kind of, uh, you know, they, they, we sin, uh, we feel convicted. Oh, I should have never said that to that person, or I should have never had that thought turn, come back, Lord, forgive me. Maybe it's an apology that needs to be made to that person, and we're restored. That is not what this is. This is, this is repudiation, right? That's the language. That's this, they're crucifying, once again, the Son of God, holding him up to contempt, right? This is, this is someone who says, you know, I figured it out. That Jesus stuff is bunk. It's just, it's just nonsense. I figured it out. I used to believe it, <laughs> Back when I was young, when I was naive, when I was an impressionable college student. Yeah, I used to believe it then, but I'm smarter now. I'm wiser now. I'm more sophisticated now. Now I understand. I've read a couple books. Now I understand that Jesus stuff. Uh, it's, it's, all, it's all made up. That's what that second half of verse 6 is describing. This is the person who, who doesn't just, isn't just struggling maybe in obedience or struggling in his or her faith. This is someone who says, I'm done. I'm done. I reject Jesus. I don't believe the gospel anymore. God's word, I used to think God's word was real. Now I understand it's just another ancient book. That's what we have described here. That is, that kind of repudiation, that kind of turning away from the Lord, that is the thorns and the thistles that verse 8 tells us is produced. If you're not convinced by all that, to me, the clincher for this interpretation comes in verse 9. So if you're, if you're thinking right now, eh, I'm not sure, are you, are you sure that verses 4 and 5 aren't really just a saved person who's, who's losing his salvation? Are you sure? And my answer is, I'm sure because of verse 9. Verse 9, uh, the author turns his attention to saved people. Verse 9, he shifts now to saved people. So he says, look what he says. It's a, such, a, such a sharp contrast. He says, though we speak in this way. What does he mean, this way? He means verses 4, 5, 6, and 6, 7, and 8. Though we speak in this way, though we speak about someone who could get that close to Jesus and turn away from it all, in your case, beloved, in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. What kind of things? Things that belong to salvation. So now he's talking to believers. Now he's talking to the true church. You see this in the pronouns. Right, so verse 9, he says, In your case, beloved, and beloved is going to tune us in. Now we're talking to the, to the believers. We're talking to Christians. He says, in your case, and that pronoun, your, he's going to use it six times in verses 9 through 12. Your or you. You, your, you, your, you, your. He says it six times in four verses. He has not used that pronoun once in verses 4 through 8. He doesn't say you or your even once when he goes through that description that we get in verses 4, 5, and 6. And to me, that's the clincher because verses 4, 5, and 6 are not talking about the beloved. Right? He's not talking about the danger of a beloved one falling away from the Lord. He's talking about someone who's not beloved at all because we don't get to the beloved until verse 9. And that's when he turns his attention to the beloved and starts talking to them. And so if I were going to outline this for you, I kind of did in there, but just to, uh, I would do it this way. Verses 4, 5, and 6 describe uh, people who look like believers but are not actually saved. Verses 9 and 12 are people who are believers and are saved. And then sandwiched in between in this little passage, verses 7 and 8, there's a parable that tells us how to tell the difference. The parable tells us. And the way to tell the difference is to look at what grows. 
what comes out. Is it repudiation and crucifixion of Jesus, uh, re-crucifying him metaphorically, or is it the useful crop, the useful crop for the Lord? The only part we haven't covered is what the useful crop is, and uh, I had about 20 more minutes to talk about the, uh, the useful crop in my notes, and I said, that's way too much. But, uh, so I'm going to just summarize it for you, but the useful crop is well, everything you get in verses 9 and 12. That's the useful crop. It's the better things, things that belong to salvation. It's the salvation things. And then he tells us, what are the salvation things, uh, dear author? Uh, what are the salvation things? Uh, I'll just read them. He says, here they are. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name and serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. And, and so, like I said, we, I don't want to take the time this morning to go through each of those, but let me just summarize them this way. What you get in verses 10 through 12 are the attitudes and behaviors that the Holy Spirit brings forth in the lives of genuine believers. And those, I think, are set over against the merely superficial stuff that's described for us in verses 4 and 5. And so he talks about good works. That's the first one on the list, right? It's good works, the works, he says. Uh, the, uh, James says that uh, faith without works is dead. The author of Hebrews would 100% agree. He'd say, absolutely, faith without works is, is dead. How do I know if, if, if I'm a believer? Well, just look at the works. Are there works to, to, to show that that faith has taken root and that it's growing? So he talks about good works. He talks about love for the Lord and the Lord's name. He talks about service, service to the saints. He talks about earnestness. He talks about hope. He talks about faith. He talks about the promises of God. And that's actually what we'll pick up on next time because that's what the rest of the chapter is about. Basically, the useful crop is founded on the promises of God, whereas the worthless crop repudiates the promises of God. And I think I'll start with this next week, but I'll just give you two names to think about. Think about Judas and think about Peter. And think about what both had exposure to, the rain that falls on us all, and then which, which, one, is, which one is which through the lens of this passage. That, I think that helps. Judas and Peter. One repudiates the promises, one embraces the promises. And so that's your useful crop. What's the useful crop that shows we belong to the Lord? It's that we live for the Lord, right? We don't reject him when hard times come. We live for him. It's, it's, we walk in his ways. We don't turn away from him. We, we walk in his ways. That's how those soils should be understood. Well, before we pray, let me, uh, let me offer three kind of practical takeaways. Uh, this is pretty densely theological. Thank you for hanging, me with, on, hanging with me on it. Kind of had to be with, the, with where this passage fits in Scripture. But let me just give us uh, three things to think about as we leave. Uh, number one, Leave the judging to God. I, I do think that's a very important thing for us to take away from this passage. This passage is not here so that we can go around slapping a label on other believers. All right, so let's not do that with this passage. You know, oh, yep, good land, good land, bad land, bad land, good land, oh, very bad land, right? Don't, don't do that to, to each other. I really think it's important not to do that. Especially in, this, you know, in the Twitter world, in the social media world, so much of that happens and I see other believe Christian leaders do it, and it bugs me. You know, somebody will say something that they probably shouldn't have said, some doctrine they shouldn't have put forward, and next thing you know, 
a hundred reformed people like me are jumping on their case and saying, oh, they're, we're done with them, no more of them. I, I, we're not supposed to do that. Leave the judging to God. When Jesus told us not to judge, this is the sort of thing he's talking about. Right? A lot of times people misunderstand when Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged. Uh, he, he did not mean don't make moral judgments. Of course we're supposed to make moral judgments. You can't get up out of bed in the morning without making a moral judgment most days. Of course we're supposed to make moral judgments, but what we're not supposed to do is go around judging each other, which is to say we're not supposed to go around claiming to have knowledge about another person's heart that only God has. And so I don't think this passage is meant to be an excuse or a permission even for us to label other Christians because we don't know what's going on in that other person's heart. And we, here's the other thing we know is we don't, we don't know what the Lord is going to yet do in that person's future. Right? We really don't know. I was struck with this. You know, I didn't do a lot this morning with it that it is impossible because I'm not sure the author wants us to. You know, it is impossible to restore that person again to, to, uh, to repentance. It reminds me of when uh, Jesus said, uh, it is easier for a rich man to, go through the eye, to be saved than it is for a, a camel. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. And his disciples say, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, with man, it's impossible. No one, it's impossible, right? And then he says, but with God, all things are possible. And I wonder if we're not supposed to read that into this just a little bit, right? If you or I, if you know someone who has walked away and you, you look at verse six in today's passage and you think, I really think that's my nephew or my son or my whoever it is, don't write them off just yet. Because yes, it says it is impossible, but it also tells us that God does the impossible. And so I don't think we're supposed to write somebody off because of, because of this passage. Here's what I think we are. So, so we're going to leave the judging to God. Number two, here's what I think we are supposed to do with this passage. We're supposed to look inside. That's why this is here. I really am convinced that's why the author puts this here. He's not setting us up to go on a mission to figure out who the good guys are and the bad guys are. He puts this here to make every reader look at him or herself. Remember the context. This passage is a warning about the danger of stunted spiritual development. So if I take an honest look at my life and I see that my spiritual growth has become stunted, I need to pay attention to that, right? Because like I said, we have one of two problems. One potential problem is that I'm just kind of stalled out and I'm stuck in some mud, right? I'm stuck in the mud of immaturity and I need to, to man up or woman up and, and start taking my spiritual growth more seriously and doing those things that'll help me grow, right? Just like a child needs to eat food or an athlete needs to train. So that's one possibility. That was the one we talked about two weeks ago. The other possibility, and I think the author wants me to entertain this possibility, is that I, I'm one of those going through the motions people. Right? That I'm one of those who was just playing a part. And so he's not saying that I am, but he's getting up in my face as he's saying, and he's saying, are you sure? Do, do you believe in Jesus? Do you really trust in Jesus? Have you surrendered your life to Jesus? Or are you just doing the Jesus thing because your wife wants you to? Or your husband wants you to? Or your parents want you to? I think this passage gets in our faces and, and makes us ask ourselves that question, which is why so many people do come to, to pastors and, and group leaders and so on and say, you know, am, am I in danger? The answer ultimately is no, but, but the cognitive dissonance isn't maybe such a bad thing. We are supposed to take a look inside and ask, have I? Have I trusted in Jesus? And so we examine ourselves. I think this passage pushes us to examine ourselves, rightfully so. But then number three, rest in Jesus. 
And I, I know, it, you know this is the counterweight to number two. Uh, examine yourself, but then having examined yourself, rest in Jesus. And that's the whole point of the shift, the movement to assurance in verse 9. He says, though we speak in this way, that hard stuff in verses 4 through 6, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure. Yeah, we call it the doctrine of assurance. We feel sure. We are certain of things that belong to salvation, better things, things that belong to salvation. So when we examine our own hearts, we say, yes, (laughs) yes, yes, I trust in Jesus. He's my Savior. And, and he remembers I'm dust. Yes, I sin. Yes, I struggle. But, but yes, he's my savior. And I understand that I, I am saved through my faith in him by his grace alone. That and that only. That's how I'm saved. And he is Lord and he's the son of God. And he, he died for my sins and he rose from the dead. And he is ascended into heaven. And someday he's coming back. Yes, to all of that. Then rest then rest. That's that shift, like I say in verse 9. You can rest in your Savior because your salvation is secure. No one can snatch you out of his hand, as Jesus says in John chapter 10. And again, that's not because of you or me. It's because of him. You are one of God's children. He's called you to himself. It's another one of the themes running through Hebrews. He's called you to himself, and he will never let you go. So rest in Jesus. If you take one thing away from that, rest in Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for, uh, for this passage. Thank you for uh, brains to work together to sort it out. I pray, Lord, anything I've said today that's wrong, that you'd burn it off like the dross that it is, and uh, that which is right, I pray you'd cause it to take root in our, uh, not just in our intellects, but in our hearts, because this is a hard issue for folks. We, we, we worry sometimes because of the world around us, because of our own frailty and struggles, we, 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 we struggle with this sometimes. And so I pray that you would... Um, challenge us. Uh, and if there are any of us here who, who have not committed our lives to you, God, would you please bring us to that place and use even the warnings of this passage to do that? And for those of us who have already given our lives over to you, may we find hope and assurance and peace in Jesus because of you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.